Hello everyone, welcome back to the Atomic Hobo. I must apologise for any wind you might hear in the background. It's howling an absolute gale up here in Glasgow. So just pretend it's atmosphere. Pretend that I've downloaded this sound effect so that we can imagine the podcast is coming from the freezing depths of a nuclear winter. Also, I must apologise that this podcast is being uploaded a day late, but I haven't been very well since I got back from London. So I hope you can forgive one day of delay. And it's my trip to London which has produced the material for this episode. It was a nuclear research trip, of course, and one of my appointments was at the British Library. Now, the British Library is the largest national library in the world. It has about 200 million items, yet there were 12 things I was particularly desperate to see above all else. Above all the treasures the library holds, such as the world's earliest printed book, Anne Boleyn's personal copy of the Bible, a notebook belonging to Leonardo da Vinci, two copies of the Magna Carta, and an original copy of Handel's Messiah. Above all of those, I wanted to see copies of a weird 1980s magazine called Protect and Survive Monthly. And we're going to take a look at this strange publication in this week's episode. I got back from this latest research trip on Monday, and thank you to my patrons who donate money each month to help fund this podcast and my research work. Their money, of course, helped fund the trip. I spent days in the British Library going through all their nuclear archives and found plenty of treasure, which will, of course, go into my book, but we'll also produce a few good podcast episodes for us here. So thank you to all my kind patrons. I also met with Dan Snow while I was in London and recorded an episode for his podcast, Dan Snow's History Hit, talking, of course, about British preparation for nuclear war, and we also discussed Chernobyl. So take a look at Dan Snow's podcast if you're a history buff, and I'll let you know when my particular episode is going to be broadcast. But for now, let's open the old and crinkled pages of Protect and Survive Monthly. Before we start, uh, let me remind my patrons who signed up at the £10 and above level that you should be receiving some presents in the post. I've sent out postcards from the Cold War exhibit called Protect and Survive at the National Archives in Kew, but I've also I raided the gift shop when I was there, which was packed full of nuclear goodies. There was Protect and Survive chocolates, uh, Protect and Survive magnets, reproduction civil defence booklets about surviving nuclear war. Uh, what else did we have? Magnets, uh, bookmarks as well. So I bought a huge bundle of them and I've sent them out to all my £10 and above patrons. I've still got a few gifts here at home, so by all means, if you want to join my patron, just now if you sign up at the £10 and above level, you will get... I can't send a postcard anymore because I'm home now, but I'll write you a note with some juicy stuff that I found in the archives and I'll send you one of my nuclear gifts. So peek at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo and there are different levels and you can sign up for whichever one you please 
but £10 and above gets you, amongst other things, some nuclear presents. But let's get into business. So we're talking about the magazine Protect and Survive Monthly. I'll assume that everyone knows what the term Protect and Survive relates to, but if not, it was a British public information campaign in the very late 70s, early 80s, on how to make your home and family as safe as possible under nuclear attack. It came in the form of a little orange booklet. You could purchase this if you wanted, but the plan was, in the run-up to nuclear war, when it was deemed imminent, it would be printed off in its millions and sent out to every household. It would also be reproduced in the national newspapers, and there were a series of very frightening, cartoonish little films which are available on YouTube, which would go out on TV and also on radio. Now, Protect and Survive was largely ridiculed, but there were some who took its message seriously. So seriously, in fact, that they set up a monthly magazine inspired by it, and its strapline was Your Guide to Surviving Nuclear War. And while the population and popular culture in general might have mocked the notion of surviving the nuclear holocaust with a lean-to and a tin of beans, the people behind the magazine, we'll call it PSM for short, were strong advocates for civil defence and believed that you could indeed survive a nuclear war, even in jam-packed, target-riddled little Britain. They believe with the proper knowledge and the proper preparation, it could be survivable. They didn't give much thought to whether you'd want to survive it, they just looked at how you could survive it. And they gave practical advice on doing so. And every month for two years, this magazine was available in your corner shop or by mail order, giving you advice on surviving the end of the world. The front covers are quite something. I'll put a series of them on my Twitter account, at Julie A. McDowell. So take a look there if you want to see them. The editor was the author, scientist and civil defence advocate Bruce Sibley. And the magazine published articles from other um, experts or interested parties, as well as features, which were quite useful actually, quite informative, about civil defence in other countries. They also had a very colourful and strident letters page and adverts. So many adverts and we'll look at those later. But let's start with those very colourful front covers that I mentioned, which had a pretty even ratio of women to weapons. Many of the covers depicted smiling, capable, healthy looking women who were either pictured in shelters or emerging from shelters, and they had all their hair, teeth and limbs intact, and they could be seen sorting out the canned goods, dealing with the children, or climbing out of the bunker into the kindly sun of post-nuclear Britain. Other front covers depicted a family all safely tucked into radiation suits. The covers which veered away from the Happy Families theme went in the very opposite direction and showed us planes and mushroom clouds and spaceships. So we had women and weaponry, mothers and missiles, babies and bombs. 
I've got no info on the readership, but like most of this stuff, I assume it was aimed at and mainly read by men. And so it appealed to what some people might say is a man's natural instinct to protect his family whilst having some fun mucking about with guns and gadgets. I couldn't possibly comment. So like all magazines, it would kick off with a note from the editor. The tone of these editorials, and of the mag in general, can sometimes be a bit defensive, if you'll pardon the pun, as these guys surely knew that the majority of the population either thought civil defence was useless, or was useless and ridiculous. So the July 1981 editorial, for example, rails against those local councils who were planning to defy central government by refusing to implement civil defence plans and therefore declaring themselves nuclear-free zones. The anger in this editorial is reserved for those pesky little lefty councils and they're immediately linked to CND agitators and those who want to kick the US out of Britain and also drag us out of NATO. Who knew local politics could be so interesting? Surely we had a common enemy here, and that was the nuclear bomb, but no, the enemy to this wacky magazine was those lefty peaceniks with their CND badges and their placards. Indeed, nuclear war in this editorial is spoken of in almost respectful tones. It says, quote, If indeed nuclear war does come to this country... Now wait, what? if it does come to the country. So we are inviting it in. We are politely anticipating it, waiting for the doorbell. We're hoping for a state visit, are we? Getting the good china out, putting the shaken vac down and baking a cake, just in case nuclear war does come to the country. And of course, the editorial argues that if nuclear war does grace us with its presence, quote, A comprehensive civil defence system would greatly reduce the number of deaths and control the level of misery caused by such a battle. Now, battle. A battle implies there will be a victor. And of course, in nuclear war, there is no victor. And civil defence can control the misery, can it? What nonsense. The advice in this magazine, as we shall see, is all about surviving the blast and the first few days afterwards until the fallout decreases. It's all about building a shelter and stocking it with the correct supplies and getting togged up in the proper radiation suit and having gadgets on hand to make sure you can receive radio broadcasts and measure the levels of fallout. Yes, but then what? What good is your tin stew? and your purified air in your little back garden bunker, when outside rages anarchy and brutality and epidemics. What then? What good is your pile of tins and your little gas mask? How does that control that particular misery? How can civil defence deal with the collapse of society and the relentless nuclear winter? The editor in a later issue also wrote the following. Dear reader, do you dream, like me, of green, pleasant lands 
of freedom, honour, truth and brotherhood? Do you long for the day when our childhood dreams of utopia come true? He goes on to say that the UN has, quote, proved incapable of controlling mankind's downward plunge. Whether you agree with me or not is unimportant. The media and newspapers do not lie. Armageddon is surely coming. Hmm, now his purple prose does him no favours. I do agree with Mr Sibley that Armageddon looked bloody close at times, especially in the early 80s, the era of his magazine. But his writing here and his tone is more suited to a sandwich board and surely deterred a lot of people from taking him and his cause seriously. And talking of this hysterical tone, as I sat in the silent reading room of the British Library, going through these strange old magazines, I got the very eerie feeling that Mr Sibley and his fellow civil defence enthusiasts perhaps wanted nuclear war. Perhaps a part of them yearned for it. Maybe they wanted it either as a way of saying I was right or as a way of finally getting to try out all those bunkers and gadgets and techniques they'd amassed and spent so much money and time on. Or even more sinister, perhaps they wanted it as a way of grappling with a new and upturned and ruined society and maybe grabbing a bit of power in that upside down world. It's a horrible thought, but I could imagine the readers of this magazine running through the streets as a four-minute warning screamed, yelling, I told you so, I told you, and then clanging the door of their shelter closed with a very smug slam. Let's look at some of the stranger articles they published. There was one looking at whether we could evacuate our cities via tunnels. It suggested building a huge motorway tunnel under Birmingham and in peacetime it would be used normally to transport cars in and out of the city. But this tunnel would have lots of little doors cut into the side and they would be kept locked in peacetime. But in time of war, these little doors would be opened and the population would calmly file through the doors and start peacefully walking through the tunnel, now closed to traffic of course, so they could escape the city. They would simply walk to safety. Okay, so when you emerge from the tunnel in the Birmingham suburbs, how are you in safety? Nuclear war and its horror doesn't stop at the city boundary, does it? It doesn't respect the Birmingham suburbs. Does anyone respect the Birmingham suburbs? To be fair, the article does say this plan doesn't solve the problem of feeding and housing the millions of pedestrianised brummies, but relax, says the article. If people are walking, if they are strolling through that tunnel with purpose, then they are taking action. They feel they are doing something useful towards their own survival. And this will help fend off boredom and panic. You could also set up little first aid areas and rest stops along the tunnels. There's also the bonus that this project wouldn't attract the attention of the Soviets, as they would just think that we were building a normal motorway tunnel. 
They wouldn't know about the secret doors and the little first aid stops. Another article asks what will happen to wild and dangerous animals after nuclear war. What about those lions and tigers kept in circuses? What about the raging elephants and the poisonous snakes kept in zoos? And what about the charging rhinos battering free from the abandoned safari parks? Well, they might eat us as we lie injured or trapped in the wreckage. True, but so might our fellow citizens. Yes, post-nuclear cannibalism was raised in an article by, of all people, a reverend. In an article called Towards an Ethic for Survival, the Reverend Martin Morgan asked what will happen to our morals, our humanity, in a ruined world. The Reverend said in his article, In order to survive, it may mean overturning many presently held customs and practices. In most circumstances today, the sick and dying gain much sympathy and care. After nuclear attack, when food, water and other supplies become scarce, will the same care be forthcoming? Will man adopt the Darwinian principle of the survival of the fittest? Our current taboo against cannibalism may disappear, as has happened in some survival instances already. We may feel some revulsion to the view that human beings may alter this dramatically, but the real world beckons us to the view that such changes may actually occur. Yeah, I think you're right. There was also a charming little segment in each issue called Spotlight, which contained little snippets of nuclear war news from around the country. Let's pick out some gems. Westminster, London. Veteran C&D campaigner Lord Jenkins of Putney came under fire in the House of Lords from Lord Mackey of Benchy. Lord Jenkins is very tiresome, Lord Mackey said. He keeps putting down the same old question in slightly different forms and the whole house is absolutely fed up with him. Lord Mackey was speaking after Lord Jenkins had asked a question regarding shelter provision for the BBC, British Telecom, gas and electricity services and the leaders of the TUC and CBI. Lord Jenkins was later reported as saying, I don't want to be a survivor, I want to be hit direct. Another little snippet came from Blythe, Northumberland. The chief executive of Blythe Valley Council said that local civil defence was pathetic at a recent meeting of the authority. Quote, The best I would be able to do is sandbag a few windows, Mr Peter Ferry was reported as saying. His comments came during a heated debate over an invitation to attend a Home Office seminar at Morpeth. Two councillors and Mr Ferry eventually attended the seminar. And from Nantwich. Speaking at Nantwich for a peace meeting, one of the group's leaders, Mr Ken Veach, said that the response of the churches was pathetic after just four local ministers turned up after 50 invitations had been mailed. The main speaker at the meeting, the Reverend Alfred Willits, rector of the Church of the Apostles at Miles Platting, Manchester, said that in his experience, chaplains to the armed forces entered the service for the money. After the meeting, Mr Willits was thanked by Mrs June Garner for his talk which she described as intriguing 
and thought-provoking. Apart from these articles and little snippets of news, much of the magazine was jammed with adverts. Now I suppose that's fair enough, they were targeting a rather niche audience here, so they can be forgiven for throwing a lot of their space open to advertisers to bring in a bit of income. And to be fair, the ads were all relevant. Most of them were for companies offering to build you a nuclear bunker. Although, you could also buy something called the survival tie. Wear the tie, says the advert. An attractively designed, well-made tie for anyone who'd like to identify themselves as a survival enthusiast. Only available to readers of Protect and Survive Monthly, these ties will make an excellent gift for family, friends or yourself. You could buy this snazzy tie in either navy, maroon, brown, black or bottle green and it has a radiation sign on it and at the centre a phoenix rising from the ashes. It could be yours for £3.75, allowing 28 days for delivery. 28 days! So what is this the Royal Mail after nuclear war then? Also advertising in the mag were Raven Meals, the first choice for long-term food storage. They sold freeze-dried meals you could stock your bunker with, although their sample menu doesn't sound too appetising. Get this, lunch is cheese and onion snack, and then dinner is beef followed by blackcurrant supreme. Also advertised were radios, which were said to withstand the electromagnetic pulse, instruments to measure radiation, gas masks, radiation suits, dynamo torches, and also you could send away for survival kitty gold. You could purchase 24 carat fractional Krugerrands for a survival kitty as, of course, paper money would be useless after a nuclear war. Although, arguably, so would gold. People will want food and water, medicine and shelter after the Holocaust, not shiny coins. In terms of the shelters themselves, we had companies offering a basic back garden package for £2,000, or you could splash out on a luxury shelter for £12,000. The ads were often keen to stress that finance was available. Nice of them to offer loans on the understanding you might never, oh never, be paying this one back. One shelter company called Mole Shelters Limited tapped into the 1980s desire for home improvements and nudging up your house prices by saying their shelters could double as a nice home extension. Extension now, shelter if, they said. So until that dreaded day, it could function as a music room, sauna, workshop, study, cinema or cellar. How very odd that asking you to plan for the total destruction of civilization by perhaps boosting your house price a little. Now, I mentioned earlier that I visited the Protect and Survive exhibition at the National Archives. It's on until November, so there's still plenty of time if you want to go and see it. 
The best part, in my opinion, is the gift shop and the bookshop, of course. But I also love the recreation of the fallout shelter they've assembled. It's not the famous inner core or refuge where you'd prop some doors against the wall and pile a mattress against it. It's the more sturdy under-the-stairs shelter where the family are supposed to hide out in their little cupboard under the stairs and load the staircase itself with sandbags or suitcases filled with books and clothes. Anything really, just to build up a barrier between yourself and the fallout. As I said, I went to the gift shop and I bought loads of Protect and Survive gifts. I might have actually cleared them out of their Protect and Survive chocolate. So if you sign up to my Patreon at £10 or above, I'll send one of these gifts out to you. Plus a note with some horribly grisly details I found in the British Library archives. I'm looking at you, South Yorkshire. Your disposal of the dead plans were quite grisly. So take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo where you can support my podcast and my nuclear research and yes, my book. I gained some new patrons this week who must have been lured in by the prospect of nuclear chocolate. One of them was Hack Green Nuclear Bunker there in Nantwich in Cheshire. I visited them, I think, two years ago eh, on a very, very quiet day midweek and I admit I was frightened down there because it was so silent and so eerie and there's this awareness that you're so deep underground in a building that was built for you know, the most hideous purpose. Um, So thank you to Hat Green for signing up to my Patreon. Uh, I also gained a new patron whose username is everyone. And I admit my heart leapt when I got a notification to my email saying, everyone has signed up as a patron. I thought, yes, I'm off to Mexico. But no, everyone is just one person. So thank you to him also. And let me give a shout out to the rest of my patrons. Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Jonathan Abelins, Simon Robinson, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Ian Elkin, Lorraine Glewitt, Bruce Fraser Armstrong, John Haynes, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reed, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butcher, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone for listening. Again, I'm sorry it's a day late, but um, I have been in a bit of a state since I got back from London, not very well, although feeling much better now. Uh, feeling much better for forcing myself to get to my desk and do this podcast. Makes me feel connected to the outside world. <laughs> so thank you for listening um, and check out my Twitter account where I will upload these famous front pages from Protect and Survive Monthly. Get me on Julie A. McDowell or at my website, juliemcdowell.com. And a reminder that all the music from this podcast is from X. Get them on Twitter at XBandUK. UK.